0: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything. Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: When the Emperor was away, Messalina was down to clown.
1: What would you do to keep your family safe? Would you lie, cheat, steal, murder? Would you marry someone you didn't love? Someone with lots of money, power, and influence. Someone who could give you all the things that were taken from you in your exile. Someone who could keep you and your family safe when safety seems like an illusion. Would you patiently wait your time in the shadows, watching as friends and loved ones face the wrath of the imperial court? Could you remain silent even if it cost you everything? Would you keep yourself and your child away from the dangerous waters of Rome, waiting until the right moment, the perfect moment, for you to wade back into the shark-infested water? Because when the time is right, when you are ready to return to Rome, you will be the avenging angel for your family. You will reshape the world, and there will be few who can stand in your way. This is your time, and when you're done, everyone will remember your name. I'm Jen
0: McManamy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Happy New Year. We are thrilled to be back with our first episode of 2019. It is, Jen. It's our first episode of 2019. I know. Who even thought we'd still be here in 2019? (laughs) I mean, I actually didn't really think. (laughs) I don't know if (laughs) I mean, I hoped. (laughs) Happy 2019. We're done. This is it.
1: (laughs) And we give up and quit
0: the podcast. Happy 2019. (laughs) We're going to spend the next two hours or however long this is telling you how we're done. This story (laughs) is not that story. It's one we've been wanting to tell for a while. Today, we return to our ancient world Stark family saga. If you missed the first two parts of this episode, Germanicus the Manicus and The Rise and Fall of Little Boots, then it's probably wise to go back and listen to those episodes before this one, because this is very much a continuation of the story.
1: Exactly. It would be like reading The Two Towers before you read The Fellowship of the Ring.
0: Yeah, you don't want to do
1: that. No, I mean, there's new characters, there's new things, where's Frodo? I
0: chronologically inadvisable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This episode is filled with characters and history returning to the spotlight, legacies being fulfilled, and murder, death, Incest, murder, and so much more.
0: And murder. Murder. We like our murder guys. Just pounding that in. Yeah, I mean we
1: don't <laughs> want you, we don't want you to get the wrong idea that we started the new year and we're gonna stop talking about murder. So, this is all a roundabout way of saying that this probably isn't the best point for you to jump into this saga. So go back, give those episodes a listen. Maybe you've listened to them, you need a refresher, go for it. We'll be right here waiting for you when you're done.
0: Okay, they're back. <laughs> <laughs> when we last left the family of Germanicus, it was 41 AD, and Caligula had been murdered, stabbed to death. By his Praetorian Guard. His wife and child were also murdered by the Praetorian Guard, and his surviving sisters, Agrippina and Lavilla, were in exile. The death of Caligula created a huge vacuum in ancient Rome. The Senate began a debate about returning to its republican roots, and the Praetorian Guard quickly realized that without an emperor to guard, they were going to be out of a job. And we talk about the Praetorian Guard a lot in two of our previous episodes about the Praetorian Guard. What is it, Beast in Your House and Caligula and Friends? Caligula and Friends. (laughs) Caligula and friends. We got a kick out of that title. We don't cover the whole ground of Caligula's life in that episode, but we do talk about his assassination and the Praetorian Guard and how that worked. Well, I think the important thing about
1: going back to that episode is it shows you what you had to do to get the support of the Praetorian Guard, which we talked about a little bit in the last episode, but that's really the ground base for where the Praetorian Guard became the beast that could make and break emperors.
0: The Praetorian Guard needed an emperor because without an emperor, it would cease to exist. So you see at periodic points in history. the Praetorian Guard assassinating an emperor and then immediately making another one because it needed an emperor. And sometimes they just held the emperorship up to the highest bidder.
1: Guys, seriously, go back and listen to the episode. It's amazing. And it's classically underappreciated in our back catalog.
0: But don't do it right now because you're in the middle of this story right now. So before we return to the story of Agrippina and Lavilla, the surviving children of the family of Germanicus, we have to take a minute to discuss the chaos that was going on in Rome right now. So in the midst of this mad scramble for power in Rome,
1: and for lack of anyone more suitable to rule, Claudius was thrust into the spotlight. Claudius was Caligula's 50-year-old uncle who'd spent most of his life sidelined from politics and the public eye. According to Suetonius, quote, When Claudius walked, his weak knees gave way under him, and he had many disagreeable traits, both in his lighter moments and when he was engaged in business. His laughter was unseemly and his anger still more disgusting, for he would foam at the mouth and trickle at the nose. He stammered besides, and his head was very shaky at all times but especially when he made the least exertion.
0: The unseemly laughter. Like, I definitely do that. <laughs> I mean, the reality is, like, I stammer through getting through this podcast so much. We both do it. It's it's really, I'm doing it right now. I edit out a lot of ums and uhs and us having to reread the same paragraph, like, three times. You know, some people are more polished and better public speakers than others. Claudius couldn't help that. Some people just foam at the mouth and laugh at completely inappropriate times, and I would be one of those people. So I mean, yeah, I tend
1: to laugh at very inappropriate things. That kind of laughter is also like that's usually a way of showing like discomfort and anxiety about things. So I kind of feel like not cool Suetonius.
0: Right. He sounds very ableist right now. Suetonius is going to Suetonius though. Claudius was the younger brother of Germanicus, and the two could not have been more different. While Germanicus was the golden boy, Claudius was the family laughingstock, the black sheep, and least accomplished member of the dynasty. He'd been hidden away from the Roman court until his nephew Caligula had made him a co-consul. It's possible Caligula did this as kind of a joke. Caligula could be incredibly cruel, or he might have actually valued the knowledge his uncle could bring to the role, considering Claudius had survived the purges of Tiberius and had been whiling away his time in the background. Claudius had a limp and a stutter, inappropriate laughter. He had some mobility issues. He had a speech impediment, but he was the only male member of the Julian-Claudian dynasty of the right age who was still standing, which was remarkable considering modern historians now believe Claudius might have suffered from cerebral palsy. Or maybe he was crazy like a fox in a Spartan shirt, right, Jen? What? (laughs) I know. And fangirl PSA, if you have a fox in your shirt, tell someone. You have a wild animal in your shirt.
1: It is inappropriate and you need an adult's help.
0: Don't keep it secret. Shirt foxes kill. Dio says, quote, partly by his nature and partly by deliberate intent, he gave the impression of great stupidity. So Dio thinks he's at least partially faking it. Playing dumb around his relatives probably saved Claudius's life because nobody took him seriously as a threat to their own power. I mean, I think that's actually pretty smart.
1: Totally. And a great way to survive in the turbulent times.
0: Yeah, because you couldn't bow out. Remember, Tiberius tried to do that and he got dragged back in.
1: Anyway, the story goes that amidst the chaos of Caligula's assassination, the Praetorian guard found Claudius hiding behind a curtain, dragged him out and swore allegiance to him then and there. This is a fascinating story that has a hint of myth to it. And to me, it really does feel like one of those, you know, stories from history. There are two schools of thought on what happened after Caligula was assassinated. One, Claudius really was cowering behind a curtain, terrified that he too was about to be murdered. And that is really plausible. There was a contingency of people who wanted to see an end to the imperial dynasty, and some of them had just assassinated Caligula. It's believable that Claudius would think he was next. Getting rid of Claudius would be a big step to wiping the dynasty off the map.
0: Another school of thought believes that Claudius was in on the plot to have Caligula assassinated, which would also make sense. Toward the end of Caligula's reign, Claudius suffered greatly. Caligula played cruel pranks on him and charged him outrageous sums of money just randomly. For instance, there was that time Caligula made Claudius a priest and then forced him to pay 10 million sesterces for the honor. Claudius had even started to show the effects of this constant stress and had become very pale and thin.
1: The thing about Caligula was he took Tiberius's surplus and wow, up in massive debts because Caligula wanted to Caligula and Caligula Caligula ing. Is that a verb? (laughs) I think I made his name a verb. But Caligula ing meant lavish parties, huge pleasure boat yachts, lots of things dipped in gold.
0: Really outrageous stunts like building a giant bridge across an entire bay and then parading across it for three days straight with Beyonce level costume changes. He was a super magpie and if you wanted to
1: live that lifestyle you needed to take lots of money and who had money? The aristocracy.
0: Claudius stood the most to benefit from a regime change. He'd always been low on the succession chain, but with Caligula dead, Caligula's infant daughter dead, and Caligula's sisters in exile, there was no one to stand between Claudius and the throne. This is assuming he wanted to be emperor anyway.
1: Yeah, and we have been calling this series The Ancient World Stark Family, and in this episode, I really feel like Agrippina is our Sansa Stark, and you will see why a bit later down the road. But... Tyrion Lannister, for those of you who know Game of Thrones, really correlates to Claudius, don't you think, Jenny?
0: yeah I think so. I mean Claudius is he's really smart. He understands politics, but he also understands the infrastructure and he's got baggage too. People don't take him seriously. They don't think of him as
1: a competent ruler. but actually after the shit show of Caligula and the absentee parentism of Tiberius, Claudius is the guy who comes in and decides it's time to take control of Rome.
0: but also he's got blind spots, especially where women are concerned. Oh, does
1: he ever but don't give them any spoilers, Jenny?
0: Whether or not Claudius was involved in the plot to assassinate Caligula, he benefited from the death of his nephew. The Praetorians took Claudius from the palace and brought him to their camp to keep him safe, and his safety came at a price. As we discussed in our Praetorian guard episodes, new emperors had to pay dearly to gain the support of the Praetorians and Claudius was no exception to this rule. Claudius bribed his guards with 15,000 sesterces each, an actual fortune, to reward their role in his new emperorship and ensure they would be loyal to him, because contrary to popular belief, Claudius wasn't an idiot.
1: With the powerful guards on his side, Claudius returned to Rome, ready to secure his kingdom. Claudius pardoned Caligula's assassins. He was keen to make sure that the people in power knew that he was not going to seek revenge for the death of his nephew. Because the aristocracy were behind the assassination and Claudius knew he couldn't afford to make enemies of them. And the Senate didn't like Claudius. Claudius had spent most of his life sidelined by his more powerful and influential family members and he'd failed to make friends in high places. As a result, when he became emperor, his court was made up of freedmen who owed their high status and favor to the emperor rather than aristocrats. Claudius was on shaky ground because his claim to the throne wasn't as secure as Caligula's had been. He was from the Claudian branch of the family, the less popular branch of the clan, who were related to Augustus by marriage and not blood. But Claudius was shrewd. His first move was to have his mother, the formidable and much admired Antonia, deified. He posthumously gave her the title of Augusta, a title she had rejected in life. This meant that Claudius was now the child of a goddess and his right to rule was shrouded in divinity. See? Shrewd, guys. Then, Claudius cracked his knuckles and got to work improving the optics in his own family. His two nieces were still exiles, and they both had complicated public images, because they had been accused of plotting to assassinate their brother, as well as committing adultery with Cligula's lover, Lepidus. Because in this family, everyone was sleeping with everyone else, they're a circle, it's painful.
0: Who wasn't sleeping with Lepidus back then? Lepidus
1: walked past the Dramonian stairs, got his magic D, and everyone was up for Lepidus. I know, they were lining up. But the sisters were also the last blood relatives of Augustus, the last children of the wildly popular Germanicus, and Claudius needed them alive.
0: So Claudius decided that the time had come to recall his nieces. This act would reunite the family, and with their support, maybe some of his big brother's sparkle and his great-uncle's authority would rub off on him.
1: could you imagine if that would just happen? Like, sparkle authority.
0: We'd all be down for that. (laughs) I make my own sparkle and authority, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Agrippina and Lavilla had spent two years in exile at this point, both alone on their own separate islands, in constant fear that their brother would send assassins to kill them at a moment's notice. If they were receiving news from Rome, when they heard about Caligula's death, they might for a moment have been overjoyed or maybe saddened. Maybe after everything that happened, they still cared for their brother. I mean, they did plot to kill him, though, so I doubt it.
1: It's complicated. In our last episode, when we talked about Caligula, everyone in the family had some kind of trauma and abuse, and those relationships are really complicated. I don't know how they would have felt about him. Definitely Agrippina could not stand him. Lavilla, well, we know nothing about her life, so who knows?
0: Lavilla is very opaque in the sources.
1: She is. There's very little mentioned about her. You have to infer a lot because. She did not cross political paths as much as Agrippina did and therefore there just isn't as much written about who she was, what she wanted, what her hopes and dreams were. I mean, you'd imagine that yes, maybe she just had had enough of her horrible brother or maybe she didn't. But you don't know how willing or unwilling they were as far as participants in that plot. How much was being driven by Agrippina or how much was being driven by Lovilla.
0: And how much was driven out of necessity because they were in a terrible situation. Go back and listen to Little Boots and you'll see what we mean. Anyway, but they also would have heard the news of Caligula's death with trepidation. Just because Caligula was dead, that didn't mean they would be safe. After Augustus died, one of the first things the new emperor Tiberius did was have his ex-wife, Agrippina and Livia's grandmother Julia, assassinated. With the sisters out of the way and Claudius ascending the throne, this would have been the perfect time to quietly assassinate the troublesome children of Germanicus. What must the sisters have thought when they saw those ships on the horizon because they wouldn't have known until they got there that those ships were coming to liberate them? Were they afraid? Were they relieved? After two years in isolation and exile, maybe they were prepared to meet their end in an assassin's blade. Or maybe not. Agrippina had a four-year-old son who needed her, and Lavilla had a husband and a life she wanted to return to.
1: Can you imagine the joy the sisters must have felt to be reunited after two years of fear and terror? Lavilla returned to her husband, Marcus Vincius, and Agrippina was finally able to hold her four-year-old son, Nero. What a homecoming this must have been for both women. What a victory. And this was before Nero had his infamous neckbeard. <laughs> Jenny is a little obsessed with his neckbeard.
0: I'm not obsessed with it. I'm horrified by it. <laughs> It's like one of those things you can't stop staring at, like a car crash. I mean, you can stop staring at a car crash, <laughs> but you can't stop staring at Nero's neck beard. Key difference. I think you're talking
1: about rubbernecking, is what you're
0: talking about. Can you imagine him going by in a
1: procession and people rubbernecking to get a look at his beard?
0: Yeah, they call that rubberneck bearding. And we've derailed again, guys. <laughs> right, we're moving on. Moving on.
1: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. One of the first things the sisters did when they were settled in Rome was bury the remains of Caligula this was not an act of defiance in the vein of Caligula's retrieval of the ashes of his exiled mother and brother. It probably wasn't even an act of familial love. You see, Caligula's ghost had been allegedly haunting the corridor where he was killed, as well as the palace and the gardens where his body had been hastily buried. Here's what happened to Caligula's body after he was murdered, and this is what was causing his ghost to be so pissed off. According to Suetonius, quote, His body was conveyed secretly to the gardens of the Lamian family, where it was partially consumed on a hastily erected pyre and buried beneath a light covering of turf. Later, his sisters on their return from exile dug it up, cremated it, and consigned it to the tomb. Before this was done, it was well known that the caretakers of the gardens were disturbed by ghosts and that in the house where he was slain, not a night passed without some fearsome apparition until at last the house itself was destroyed by fire. So even in death, Rome had a Caligula problem, a ghost Caligula problem. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's like the Tudorberg Forest ghost problem. Totally. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Germanicus, but he's already dead. I know. The next best thing is his daughters. Right. You're going to call the children of Germanicus. Oh my God. Ancient world ghostbusters. Yes. This family has a sideline with busting. Do you think like maybe Sam and Dean from Supernatural
1: would be like, we know those girls.
0: <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe this is part of the Winchester family lore. Yeah. The original Hunter's lore. Somebody should write this fan fiction. The children of Germanicus ghostbusters.
1: I mean, if we got enough money on our Patreon, I would write that fan fiction, guys.
0: <laughs> we should like start a Kickstarter or something. Let us know
1: in the comments if you want that. <laughs> the best way to set Caligula's spirit to rest was to properly bury him. This is a common belief for the Roman people and for the sisters who had designs on returning to the Roman aristocracy and court life, making sure the spectre of their brother was properly buried was essential. And this wasn't just a metaphorical act. This was about healing old psychic wounds and Agrippina and Lavilla were great at optics. This was definitely a callback to their father Germanicus returning to the Teutoburg forest where there had been a massive massacre and laying to rest the... bodies of these fallen soldiers. This was their moment.
0: At the same time that Agrippina and Lavilla were making their triumphant return to Rome in 41 AD, Claudius and his wife Messalina had reason to celebrate. Their son, Britannicus, was born.
1: His name when he was born was not Britannicus, but guys, it's way too complicated. Let's just call him Britannicus because that's the name everyone in history remembers him as. It's the same with Nero. Nero's name at this time might not have been changed to Nero yet. It wasn't Neckbeard Nero yet. It wasn't Neckbeard (laughs) Nero yet. And the same with in our Caligula episode. We really tried to use the names that are most common so that it's easier for you to follow along.
0: That's true with Germanicus, too. His name was Drusus, like everyone else. Until he conquered Germany,
1: he was was Drusus. So we know that this at the time, that wasn't his name. But a lot of times we do pick the name that people in history are most familiar with.
0: Right. So we're just going to call him Britannicus. So anyway, so Britannicus was born and the birth of Britannicus gave Claudius a clear air. Everything was coming up. Claudius, after 15 years as the butt of everyone's jokes, Claudius was finally on the top and he was not about to share his power. Not every one was so thrilled with Claudius being emperor. You see, Lavilla's husband, Marcus Vincius, was incredibly popular, and when Caligula was assassinated, there was a faction of people who considered Vincius to be a more credible candidate for emperor. And Vincius was actually all up for the job and was probably involved in the plot to assassinate Caligula. Not only was Vincius someone the senate could work with, but his wife Lavilla's claim to the throne was better than Claudius and Messalina's. Claudius had actually paved the way for the rivalry between him and Vincius by pardoning the sister and returning them to Roman society. Livilla was young and pretty, and she was the daughter of an epic war hero, and she was just the right amount of tragic, being an orphan and an exile, to make the people of Rome really fall in love with her. And her husband was politically minded and powerful. They made a good ancient world power couple, and that meant they made a good challenge to Claudius' power, right, Jen?
1: Absolutely. I mean, they were the type of people who you'd look at, like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, who, in theory, they're quite down the line in succession. They're not necessarily going to inherit, but they're very powerful and the people love them.
0: Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are not going to usurp the throne, but if it was more contentious up there, then they might be a good target for that because they're a lot more popular and dissidents might rally to them and try to get them on the throne instead. And it might happen with or without their consent. You know, Claudius wasn't like really popular with the people.
1: He was about as popular as fungus on your feet.
0: (laughs) I mean, he couldn't have been that bad. Like he wasn't an abusive emperor. He
1: wasn't an abusive emperor, but he was kind of boring and he laughed at wildly inappropriate jokes and foamed at
0: the mouth. You have to laugh appropriately at all times or like rein it in. This is just a total aside. But if you're kind of used to being on your own a lot and you have kind of a unique sense of humor... Things are going to strike you funny that don't strike everyone else as funny. And you're kind of in the corner laughing when nobody else is. Like, I'm that person for sure.
1: Yeah. And Claudius was an intellectual and he was really interested in history and he wrote histories of different time periods. And I think he really found some of that stuff funny and his humor was just different. And also, he was totally used to being married to women who I feel like he was a little bit handpecked sometimes.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. And we're going to get to it right now, actually. Right, right, this moment. Good segue.
1: Messalina was Claudius' third wife. She was also his first cousin once removed. Claudius and Messalina married in 38 AD, three years before Claudius became emperor. Messalina was somewhere around 18 or 21 at the time of the marriage. The dates are fuzzy because Messalina totally lied about her age and Claudius was about 48. When Claudius was suddenly promoted to emperor by the Praetorian guard after Caligula's death, Messalina's star rose just as fast. And Messalina was very aggressive in protecting her position as empress. So, practically from the minute she got home, Lavilla found herself at odds with Messalina. Not much is known about exactly how the feud between Lavilla and Messalina started. These two women were about the same age, and it's possible they just didn't like each other. Maybe Messalina was jealous of the attention Lavilla was receiving. Maybe Marcus Vincius was too outspoken in the Senate and Lavilla became a target for the empress as a way to silence him. Or maybe Lavilla was. Having an affair with the influential Stoic Seneca. Seneca was over 20 years her senior. And to be fair, so was Lavilla's husband. So maybe Lavilla had a thing for older men.
0: I question how much agency she had or how much choice she had or whether you could accurately say, oh, she just liked older men. Because I think that women just didn't get a choice about the older men. You're 14 and you're married to a 40 year old, and that's just what you do. Your parents make you.
1: Yeah, but it is possible that she did like Seneca, who was 20 years older than her, and maybe she had a type. We don't know. There's nothing written about Lavilla. And Seneca was kind of cool. Seneca had been an outspoken critic of Caligula. Maybe they had some kind of friendship and romance.
0: I don't know. I mean, this is all complete conjecture. We're making it up. Anyway, Lavilla was accused of sleeping with Seneca, and the two of them were both exiled.
1: Modern historians doubt this affair ever took place. Both Seneca and Lavilla were outspoken and influential, and Seneca had been a huge critic of Caligula. Seneca was an excellent public speaker, and he'd given many a speech that had pissed off the former emperor, Caligula. So much, in fact, that Caligula had called for Seneca's execution. But Seneca's poor health had saved him, and believing that Seneca was already dying... Caligula was merciful, and he decided to allow nature to take his course. Maybe he just found, moved on to a new shiny person to torment. We don't know. But, plot twist, Seneca didn't die. He had been very ill, but he recovered. Oh, he got better like Caligula did. Exactly. And then Caligula died. So it's highly probable that the outspoken Stoic was high on the list of people Claudius didn't want to give a platform to during his reign.
0: Why would Claudius want to get rid of Seneca then?
1: It's possible that he had really strong Republican leanings. It's possible that he was friends with Marcus Vincius and was somehow involved in all the back channel stuff that was going on behind the scenes. We don't know what Claudius knew about Seneca, but we do know that it was very important that La and Seneca get out of town quite early in Claudius' reign for him to have some stability. The first few years of Claudius' reign, they were really fraught with political problems. The aristocracy was not behind Claudius. He'd been a laughingstock for all of his life. And Seneca was also a satirist, so possible he wrote one or two not nice things about Claudius. We don't know.
0: Claudius might have been doing advanced damage control. Exactly.
1: So getting rid of Seneca and La in one accusation was just ridiculously useful. And and an adultery accusation, which is what they were accused of, was just the thing to disgrace Marcus Vincius
0: and remove
1: the troublesome Livia and Seneca from the Roman people's eyes.
0: So you're basically killing three birds here with one stone. Pretty much. So in 41 AD, almost as soon as Livia had returned to Rome and unpacked her bags, she was accused of adultery with Seneca and sent back to Pandateria. And this time, there was no last-minute reprieve. Claudius ordered her execution by starvation. Her death hauntingly echoes her mother and grandmother's, both of whom died on the same island. Poor Lavilla passed away in 42 AD. She was just 23 years old. Seneca was also sent into exile he spent his time in exile famously writing to his mother about how she had to be strong while he was gone. And I think those were some of his first writings that have come down to us, right? His letters to his mom.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some of his famous stoic writings about stoicism. I don't know a lot about stoicism.
0: At this point in this episode, you might have realized already that neither of us know anything about stoicism.
1: Yeah, what I know about stoicism comes from The Good Place, which is excellent <laughs> and will teach you about philosophy, but it's also a sitcom.
0: So anyway, Seneca wrote to his mom, and we don't know if Livilla wrote any Thing in exile. If she did, her words are lost to history. The only time we get to see pieces of Lavilla's story are when they're connected to other powerful men. One of the things that's so shocking about Lavilla's story is that she was sent into exile twice. You'd think that after her initial exile, she would have done everything in her power to not wind up back on an island at the mercy of her jailers. But Lavilla was young and a threat to the new imperial family, and her luck didn't hold out. And I wonder if she mouthed off to Messalina. I mean, it's,
1: possible. Unfortunately, there's no way of knowing. It doesn't exist anywhere exactly how the two of them got interviewed, what she might have said, what she might not have said.
0: My hunch here is that there really wasn't a lot that Lavilla could have done. I mean, by virtue of being married to Vincius, who was a threat to Claudius, and turbocharging the Vincius threat by giving him a direct line to the succession, they made themselves a bigger threat to Claudius, and that made them a target. Yeah, the
1: only thing that would have made them even bigger a threat would be if she'd been pregnant.
0: Yeah, and during During this time, the new imperial family were actively consolidating their power. Claudius had a fraught relationship with the senate. According to Suetonius, over the course of Claudius' 13-year reign, the emperor would have 35 senators and 300 knights executed in treason trials for conspiracies and for various other causes. There were several coup attempts throughout Claudius' reign and the emperor and his wife were very careful to keep their friends close and their enemies closer. During the same time frame,
1: Agrippina was keeping a low profile. Her husband Domitius had passed away while she was in exile, and she was a single mom at this point. And to protect her own position and Nero's, she needed to remarry. According to the ancient sources, she shamelessly threw herself at Galba, the man who would one day be emperor of Rome. Because, say whatever you want to say about Agrippina, that woman knew power and was able to sniff it out. Why Galba? She needed Galba. Galba was kind of a prude, which was good for someone who'd been accused of adultery with the guy who was also sleeping with her brother, and also she'd been accused of sleeping with her brother. So Agrippina needed a little bit of an image rehab here.
0: Yeah, and Galba, if you don't remember, where does he show up? He shows up in, I think it was the Praetorian Guard episode. He shows up again in Locusta. Galba was the person who took power after Nero's reign, and he famously did not pay off the Praetorian Guard because he was too upstanding and the praetorian guard ganked him
1: as you do because the praetorian guard have the swords
0: right so galba was an he was a fine upstanding citizen to his own detriment ultimately but at the time that was something that Agrippina would have felt she needed he was also wealthy
1: and she could use his power base to get her own power back but the thing was galba was actually happily married to his wife amelia lepida i mean who knew
0: Yeah, sometimes they were happily married, against all odds. Yeah, and Galba
1: refused Agrippina's advances. Allegedly, Amelia Lepida's mother slapped Agrippina in public and chastised her in front of a bunch of Roman matrons. To me, this smacks, no pun intended, of the ancient sources looking for a way to really make Agrippina look even more like a schemer and a wanton.
0: Yeah, I think the ancient sources really painted her with a very demonizing brush. It was definitely a red brush. She's got all the red letters on her. Scarlet letters. Scarlet A for
1: Agrippina. This kind of didn't make sense to me because if she's trying to keep a low profile, why is she throwing herself at married men?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe this was in the beginning when she was more desperate than she was schemey. Maybe. So
1: Agrippina gets a bad rap in the ancient sources, and it's not hard to see why. To be fair, she did some pretty awful things. But Agrippina was a woman who saw a world that was deeply unfair and refused to allow herself to be dictated by those rules. And that is something the ancient sources had a hard time dealing with. It's why time and again, Agrippina is described as masculine and plotting.
0: Whenever we see a woman in the ancient sources taking any kind of agency and control in her life, she gets called masculine. As if it's like femininity means being utterly passive and letting men dictate everything that happens in your life for you and just going along with it. Well, that's what I do, Jenny. You tell me what to do or my husband tells me what to do. If nobody tells me what to do, I don't know what to do. <laughs> That's what being a woman is, Jen. Then you just sit in a room and stare at a wall until someone comes and tells you what to do. I stare at a wall with yellow wallpaper. That's my lot in life. I don't do that because I am masculine.
1: Anyway, women had to use back channel methods of securing power. And marrying a powerful man was part of it. And if that is what she had to do to keep her and Nero safe, then so be it, Jenny.
0: But Claudius had to approve who Agrippina married because he was her guardian. He had a big stake in Agrippina not marrying someone too powerful or political because as we've seen with Lavilla, the daughters of Germanicus were lightning rods for political dissidents who wanted Claudius out. Actually, more to the point, their husbands were because women didn't have official political power in Rome. But the sisters of Germanicus had a better bloodline than Claudius did, so whoever married them had a pretty good route to the throne. It was this that got Lavilla exiled. If Agrippina married a non-threatening husband, her marriage would bring more stability to Claudius' reign and keep the factions against him in check. But if Agrippina married someone too powerful or too ambitious, Claudius would be stuck with a serious rival. He had to make sure that he kept the powerful rallying figure of Agrippina safely tucked away from political life. Agrippina was not her sister Lavilla. She was older, wilier, and at this point in time, she would have been about 26. She was very conscious of the swirling currents of Rome, and she was not going to allow herself to be poor, to be exiled, or to be at the mercy of a bad husband ever again. Agrippina was ready to play the long game. With
1: marriage to Galba being a no-go, Agrippina set her sights on marrying Passienus Crispus. Passienus was very powerful, extremely wealthy, and a witty man. He was just what Agrippina needed, because right now, Agrippina was broke. Her husband's estate had been confiscated by Caligula after he died. When Claudius became emperor, he gave baby Nero his father's estate in a kind of trust. But Agrippina didn't have ready access to that cash, and she needed cash if she was going to play the Game of Thrones. politics.
0: I mean, she also needed cash just to live on. Claudius had basically cut her off of her own livelihood by putting Nero's estate in a trust.
1: Yeah, he did not want her to have the power that having a lot of money would give her.
0: But he basically made it absolutely necessary for her to remarry, which created a whole other problem for him.
1: Totally, but it also was a problem in which he got to be in charge. So Agrippina was going to have to marry the person he picked because he was the head of the family. So there's just a small problem with Agrippina's new choice and husband. passinus was already married to Domitia, Agrippina's sister-in-law, who had taken care of Agrippina's son, Nero, while she was in exile. Domitia, who was the sister of Agrippina's abusive husband, who'd once gouged out someone's eye in the forum. Domitia, whom Agrippina hated with the fire of a thousand sons. Demisha's full name was Demisha Lepida the Elder. From here on out, we're calling her Demisha because confusingly, Demisha Lepida the Elder had a sister also named Demisha Lepida, this time the younger, and she also plays a role in the story. So for clarity's sake, when we say Domitia, we mean the older sister.
0: Right, and when we say Lepida, we mean the younger sister.
1: Exactly. Things would have been so much easier if Roman naming conventions didn't mean everyone wound up with variations of the same name.
0: Here are all of my daughters, Domitia, Domitia, and Domitia. Anyway, Domitia had spent four years raising baby Nero Neckbeard while Agrippina had been in exile. (laughs) Guys, we have a
1: whole episode on Neuro coming up. It's just going to be Neuro Neckbeard the first.
0: We're gonna put a picture in the show notes of Nero and his neckbeard. It's epic. And over those four years, she had formed a real bond with Nero that would last into Nero's reign as emperor. It's not 100% clear why Agrippina hated Domitia so much. One possibility was that Agrippina was jealous of that bond. It's also possible that Agrippina just never liked her sister-in-law. Remember, Agrippina's first husband, Nero's father, had a pretty terrible reputation. He'd been accused of incest with his younger sister, Lepida. He'd beaten his freedmen to death when he refused to play a drinking game. And on the Appian Way, he ran over a child who was playing with a doll in the road. He swindled victorious charioteers out of prize money. He'd been accused of treason. And he was a notorious womanizer. And he was an eye gouger. In the forum. We can just all agree on certain norms of behavior and they do not include eye gouging in the forum. (laughs) I mean,
1: there are no eye gouging and no shirt foxes.
0: No eye gouging, no shirt foxes no running over kids in the road, and Domitius just decided he was going to check off all of those terrible boxes. It's not a stretch to think that Agrippina just really hated everybody in this family because I already do and I don't even know them personally. The problem was her in-laws were also tied to the emperor Claudius because the family tree is a snake that's eating its own ass (laughs) and and Messalina, Claudius's wife, was Domitius's niece. Try not to have a migraine. I'm sorry. You can see how complicated the family reunions were, and also those family reunions were extremely tense.
1: Yeah, because they were all sleeping with each other, trying to assassinate each other, actually murdering each other, exiling each other. Pass the potatoes. I mean, at least it would be. (laughs) I mean, some of you might have had stressful Christmases, but I suspect they weren't
0: this stressful. (laughs) If you're smart like a Spartan shirt fox, then you pull a Claudius and sit in the corner and drool a lot so nobody wants to talk to you and just inappropriately laugh. Laugh at all these assholes. (laughs) So, Emperor Claudius decided it would be easier to marry his niece to Passienus and deal with the fallout of ordering Passienus to divorce his wife's niece than it would be to let Agrippina remain single. So Claudius commanded Passienus to divorce his wife and marry Agrippina. Which,
1: can we just stop for a minute? How much fear he had of a single woman.
0: Single women in ancient history were demonized. They were claimed to be vampires or succubi or whatever. Anyway, around 41 AD, about the time poor La Villa found herself back in exile, Agrippina and Passienus were married. And once they were married, Agrippina kept a bloody low profile because things were about to get wild in Rome. It's almost like Agrippina could just smell the court drama and intrigue wafting in on the gentle Mediterranean breeze. Agrippina knew that if she wanted to survive the coming months, she would have to make sure that she kept her head down and kept herself and Nero far from the giant tire fire of Rome. She also needed the money and image rehabilitation that a marriage to Passienus would provide. Because Agrippina had a finely honed political instinct, like a moth antennae sticking up with its delicate little feelers, just tasting the wind. And finding that it tastes like a dumpster fire. So
1: meanwhile, back in Rome, Claudius was struggling to get the Senate on his side and get control of his wife. Messalina was a wild child. She was in her early 20s and she had been given unprecedented power. We've already seen that she was ruthless in eliminating threats to that power with the exile and murder of Livia. And Lavilla wasn't Messalina's only victim. Messalina apparently fancied her stepfather, the powerful senator Appius Solanus. But Appius Solanus was not about to get down with his daughter-in-law, no matter how many times she threw herself at him. And Jenny, my eyes just rolled into the back of my
0: head. I know. It's, it's just like the ancient sources refused to give any kind of motivation to Messalina that didn't have to do with her raging lust for these older senators. <laughs> I mean, and this one is
1: her stepfather, and I'm just like, I just.
0: What really makes me roll my eyes about the way Messalina is depicted in the ancient sources is like, there could not have been this many attractive older, se- like they were not all silver foxes. She could not possibly have just wanted to sleep with them all because of her incredible raging hormones.
1: And also, like, it just upsets me because like the idea of making her this raging, out of control sex predator empress is totally as a foil to make Claudius look incompetent, as opposed to actually who she was as a person. It just infuriates me. Anyway, Messalina's father-in-law was not about to sleep with his daughter-in-law. That would make those family reunions
0: even more awkward. I mean, I think that ship has sailed. Anyway, So Messalina did not take the rejection well. She teamed up with Claudius' trusted and influential freedman Narcissus to hatch a plot to get her revenge on Appius Solanus for saying no to her. And this is how it all went down, according to Suetonius. Quote, Narcissus rushed into Claudius' bedchamber before daybreak in pretended consternation, declaring that he had dreamed that Appius had made an attack on the emperor. And then Messalina, with assumed surprise, declared that she had had the exact same dream for several successive nights. Coincidence? I think not. A little later, as had been arranged, Appius, who had received orders the day before uh, Messalina's orders to come at that time, was reported to be forcing his way in. And as if it were proof positive of the truth of this dream, his immediate accusation and death were ordered. And Claudius did not hesitate to recount the whole affair to the Senate the next day and to thank the freedmen for watching over his emperor's safety, even in his sleep. So let's just unpack this craziness for a minute. Oh, can we please? <laughs> According to Suetonius,
1: Claudius is a complete moron who is totally ruled by portents and dreams and easily manipulated by his wife and narcissus.
0: A lot of women were, you see them in history playing on the superstitions of men around them, and Messalina's definitely doing that. I mean,
1: Messalina is gaslighting the emperor. That's, That's exactly so what's <laughs> happening. Anyway, this portrait of the emperor doesn't instill much confidence in anyone reading this account of Claudius' rule. As told to you by Suetonius, he was not his contemporary. This is very much in contrast to the image of Claudius the scholar and Claudius the historian. And of course, Claudius' favorite title, Claudius the conqueror.
0: Right, there were a lot of different Claudiuses.
1: There totally were. And to me, this whole story feels very much like it has been crafted by Suetonius to make Claudius seem like a very weak ruler. But again, this is the source that has survived into the present, and that's what we've got to go on.
0: I mean, it does, from the way the the women's back channel worked, it does ring a little bit true to me.
1: I think, to me, the problem I have with it is, like, if this was Julius Caesar, you would also have the underlying of Julius Caesar was also aware that this guy could be a problem, so he wanted him killed anyway. Whereas with this, it's like Claudius had no idea it was just about Messalina wanting to sleep with someone who didn't want to sleep with her.
0: Right. Well, it could be that that was what Claudius thought, but that's just not what's come down to us.
1: Exactly. And it could could also be that what Suetonius has reported is actually correct, But a lot of the early Claudius stories are like this. And I'm like, how stupid could he have been? He's lived 50 years. He's made it through like three emperors and he's not dead yet.
0: Yeah. And he was also a scholar, you know, and a historian. He wasn't like a dumb guy.
1: He didn't seem like it. But what do I know? In 43 AD, Claudius began the invasion of Britain because Claudius needed a win. He had an unruly senate, an unruly wife, and a court made up of freedmen. He needed a big victory to get the people and the senate to take him seriously. And that's
0: exactly what he said about gaining. And we're going to get into this story next season. Yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of Romans in Gaul and a lot of Romans in Britain. It's going to be amazing.
1: Yes, and this story is going to involve war elephants, epic female warriors. This is Boudica's story. Yeah, we're finally getting to Boudica. We told you we would, but for now, it's just important to know that while Claudius left Rome to invade Britain, Messalina got up to all kinds of trouble in the capital.
0: Messalina spent much of Claudius's early reign throwing herself at men. Oh, catch me, Solanus, here I come. Catch me, Valerius! And then when they just sort of (laughs) stepped aside and let her flop on the floor, she would get her evil revenge. I mean, I just just have to laugh because I'm just like all of these 40, 50, 60-year-old senators just... Assuming that they're irresistible to this nymphomaniac empress.
1: This nymphomaniac 20-something-year-old empress, mother of two, she has all the power in the world. They should be throwing themselves at her to get a chance to get Claudius's ear, or even her ear if she's got power over Claudius. And maybe, just maybe, that was what was really happening. It reads like kind of a male fantasy. Like, they're just wishing that this is how it was. Totally. They're like, hot young empress just wants to... Fuck all the senators who are twice her age. And we should say there are many silver foxes out there and people who are in their 40s and 50s now look a lot better than they did.
0: A lot of zaddies out there and we salute you. We're just saying that all of these dudes were not you. Messalina spent, as we were saying, much of Claudius's early reign just, like, offering her body to all of the senators, anyone who sort of wandered in her path, theoretically. And apparently, Claudius was not aware of this happening, which seems a little hard to believe, to say the least. And there were a lot of affairs, but we're going to focus on two. First, Valerius Asiaticus, who had the most incredible gardens. These gardens were the envy of everyone in Rome. And Messalina was the empress of Rome, so her eye was fixed, Sauron-like, on these gardens. (laughs)
1: that's your second lord of the rings metaphor for this podcast
0: it's supposed to be game of thrones but now we've wandered into lord of the rings territory i
1: mean think about the gardens in high garden that's what we're talking about
0: and it's about an evil, burning, unblinking eye. That's those two things. Think about it. And she also had her eyes on this senator, Valerius Asiaticus, because he was the lover of her rival, Papia Sabina, the elder. And you're probably thinking, Miss Lena is the empress of Rome. Who exactly is she in a rivalry with? Well, Papia was smitten with, I guess, it's spelled M-N-E-S-T-R. I can only assume that this is pronounced Nestor.
1: Yeah, I looked on the interwebs for a pronunciation of this and there was none.
0: Right. So um, this was a young actor, mm, Nestor, whom Messalina also wanted to get with. And so you can see where this is going, right? Valerius Asiaticus wound up being collateral damage. Messalina propositioned Valerius, and when he turned her down, she accused him of adultery with Papia, failure to maintain his troops, and engaging in homosexual acts. What is up with the maintaining the troops? So the maintaining
1: the troops was really interesting. A lot of private Roman citizens had enough money to build an army, and I know we're going to look at this next year when we talk about some stuff that happened in Caesar's lifetime.
0: Sometimes the private armies were not that well disciplined, and you could get held responsible in court if your army was like running around causing havoc in the countryside.
1: Yeah, you could have roving gangs of soldiers just causing havoc in the countryside. And that's what they're accusing Hilarious of. But he's also wealthy enough to have this army so Claudius does not want him around any more than Messalina does.
0: And Claudius saw these charges that Messalina was bringing, had some, you know, hesitation about it, but then just decided to have Valerius killed. And this execution caused huge problems because it had been done without the approval of the Senate. After Valerius was executed and his wealth and beautiful gardens were seized, Messalina pushed Papia to suicide with her campaign of social and political bullying,
1: And because Messalina was still not done shitting on everything Lavilla loved, the empress. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) it's true. That's how I wrote it. (laughs) The empress tried to seduce Marcus Vincius, Lavilla's widower. And I kind of buy this. Messalina gets a bad rap for a lot of things. But it's really possible that with Claudius being seen as a weak ruler, maybe she did really want to find a stronger husband. Marcus Vincius would have been a good option. Except he had a long memory, or just a memory? (laughs) He was not about to get it on with the woman who'd had his wife exiled and murdered, which was ultimately his downfall. Messalina had Marcus Vincius poisoned. The ancient sources paint the empress as beautiful, petty, vindictive, and sex-crazed. And that's being as diplomatic as possible. Messalina was called, quote, imperial whore, and the, quote, harlot queen. Emma Southin in her book, Agrippina, Empress, Exile, Hustler, Whore, looks at the complicated depiction of Messalina, and it's worth stopping for a minute to think critically about that depiction. Women in ancient history tended to be foils for the men they were connected to, Someone like Messalina was represented in the ancient sources in a way to show all of Claudius' failings. He was weak, controlled by his sex-obsessed, much younger wife. Messalina might have been a sexually progressive woman who was sleeping around on her husband, but as we get further into her story, there are some things that are just hard to believe. It's also possible that Messalina had her own agenda. She had a son, Britannicus, to look after.
0: Her number one goal was to make sure Britannicus lived and Britannicus got to be on the throne. So if she really thought that Claudius was weak and likely to be overthrown any minute, her priority would probably be to hitch herself to somebody stronger as soon as she can and maybe manage that process so that she and her son survive it. That could be why she's throwing herself at all these senators and the ancient sources. And to be very clear here, by the way, Claudius had his own mistresses. It's not like the emperor was just hanging out in his bed alone, wondering where his hot young wife had gone. Claudius was getting his on the side as well. And maybe he didn't mind an open relationship with his wife as long as she kept her affairs discreet it's also possible that the 50 year old emperor wasn't down to clown at all hours like his 20 something bride down to clown (laughs) who writes this (laughs) who wrote this script i did and i totally made you say that (laughs) What have we come to? It's also possible that Messalina just liked a good party. She was in her 20s. The world was laid out before her. She was the empress of Rome. She produced an heir, Britannicus, and a daughter, Octavia, for Claudius to marry off to secure alliances. So she had done her duty. And now maybe she wanted to have a little fun. And she had a husband who doted on her because that's not really coming through here. But Claudius doted on Messalina, a husband who traveled a lot. And when the emperor was away, Messalina was down to clown. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because she knew that she could just bat her eyes at Claudius and he'd be like, okay, sweetie, go buy a new million sister she purse or whatever.
0: Uh, this sounds like Hannibal's relationship with the Carthaginians.
1: <laughs> I mean, but yeah, Claudius, I do think, felt quite lucky to be and happy to be married to this beautiful young hottie.
0: I bet she had her ways of keeping him happy, you know. Oh, she totally did. So. This is the episode about Messalina, so we have to tell you about the things that Messalina did to earn herself her reputation because we have not actually covered this yet and we cannot gloss over it. This is a quote from Juvenile the Satirist, and take this with a salt lick.
1: Also, if for whatever reason you're listening to this podcast with small children...
0: Yeah, this might be the time to turn the volume down because it gets a bit graphic. While this quote is satirical, Juvenal was pulling his facts from other ancient sources like Pliny the Elder's Natural History Book 10. And Pliny the Elder also tells some whoppers in the natural history, so take that with a grain of salt, too. Quote, The minute she heard Claudius snoring, his wife, that whore empress, who dared to prefer the mattress of a stews. Mattress of a stews? What's a stews? It's an old-fashioned word for a bad neighborhood. Okay. So, mattress of a stews to her couch in the palace, called for her hooded night cloak and hastened forth with a single attendant. Then, her black hair hidden under an ash blonde wig, she makes straight for her brothel with its stale, warm coverlets and her empty, reserved cell. Here, naked, with gilded nipples... That's my favorite part. The gilded nipples. I also love how she puts a wig on and nobody knows who she is.
1: It is one of those Superman things. And in my research, they were saying that one of the few places where you might actually find out the color of her hair is from that quote.
0: Oh, yeah, that's super interesting. So Messalina had black hair and gilded nipples. So anyway, here, naked, with gilded nipples, she plied her trade under the name of the wolf girl. The wolf girl is my favorite bit of this episode. (laughs) I love that too, parading the belly that had once housed a prince of the blood. She would greet each client sweetly, demand cash payment, and absorb all of their battering without ever getting up. Too soon, the brothel keeper dismissed his girls. She stayed right till the end, always last to go, then trailed away sadly, still with burning rigid vulva, exhausted by men yet a long way from satisfied, cheeks grimed with lamp smoke, filthy, carrying home to her imperial couch the stink of the whorehouse. I mean, first off, whoever wrote this, juvenile clearly does not know how vulvas work. Like, it's not like an erection. It doesn't get rigid. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Jenny, there's a total Saturnalia
1: reference here. Yo, Yo, Saturnalia! Saturnalia. Praise Saturn. (laughs) Praise Saturn. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're such nerds. We are so nerdy. Okay. Messalina's face and cheeks were grimed with lamp smoke. That means she had a corked face. Oh, she did? She had
0: a corked face. Somebody needs to dunk her face in cold water.
1: I mean, I think Messalina needs to do that for herself.
0: (laughs) I think she's had a long (laughs)
1: night. (laughs) So there are also tales of Messalina challenging a sex worker to a sexual marathon in the Imperial Palace. Dio describes Messalina's exploits like this, quote, Messalina as if it were not enough for her to play the adulteress and harlot, for in addition to her shameless behavior in general, she at times sat as a prostitute in the palace itself and compelled other women of the highest rank to do the same.
0: And we just want to say here, we know that the word... Whore is not an appropriate word for sex workers. We're using words like that when they're in a quote, but we know that the appropriate word is sex worker, and we are going to use that word when it's just us talking. We also don't want to contribute to the stigmatization of sex workers. No, absolutely not. She also turned the imperial palaces into a brothel, and she's shown as commanding other women of the highest rank to offer out their services as well. So I don't know. You see this cropping up a lot. People turning the Imperial Palace into a brothel. Caligula, Tiberius turned Capri into a brothel. Elagabalus did it. It's like everyone had the same idea at different times. I know. (laughs) I'm emperor now. What would go really well at the Imperial Palace? A brothel.
1: Totally. And I mean, at this point in time, if you're a high-ranking woman, Messalina could just call you up, Jenny, and be like, Hello, it's time for you to work the night shift at Messalina's
0: Imperial Brothel. And it does sound like now we've got a phone sex line happening too. But if it was phone sex, you wouldn't have to gild your nipples. I would gild my nipples anyway, just for fun. So, Jen, do you think all of ancient Rome was one big orgy? (laughs) What kind of question is that? The answer is obviously yes. It might be a leading question. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think it's like, does the big bear piss in the woods? Yes. (laughs) Messalina was pimping out other women of the upper classes, allegedly. Caligula pimped out men and women of the upper and lower classes to the upper classes. All of this sex work was allegedly going on in the imperial palace. Tiberius pimped out everyone of every class on his own private island. Like, this is the other question that I have. All these people who are ultimately made Damnatio Memoriae, these are the stories that have stayed with us today. I mean, the best way to make sure that someone's remembered down through history is to tell everyone that they made the Imperial Palace into a brothel.
1: And let's be honest, people remember the name Anthony Weiner because of all the sex scandals, but there are other people much more deserving who we've forgotten.
0: Right, who did not have sex scandals attached to their names.
1: Yeah, who were just being awesome people doing awesome jobs. Or mediocre jobs. Or just jobs.
0: Managing not to sext 15-year-olds somehow. Just getting by in this world. I mean, the ancient Romans, if they could sext, they would be sexting 14-year-olds. Oh God! If the ancient Romans could sext,
1: oh God!
0: Saturn, help us! <laughs> Saturn, preserve us from sexting Romans. <laughs> It'd be the worst, dear Minerva. No, <laughs> stop it, Cicero! Put that back in your pants,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Cicero. No one wants to see your chick no, be. But- <laughs>
0: If you remember from one of our other episodes, Cicero's name means chickpea, possibly because his nose or something else, I don't know, the sources don't say, it was shaped like a chickpea. They
1: definitely say nose, and possibly <laughs> because his family owned an ancestral chickpea farm, but,
0: you know. Maybe his nose was a euphemism for something else. That is possible. <laughs> Back to this story? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> moving on. Lest you think... That Messalina was only interested in having sex with everyone all the time. Let's rewind. Messalina was also shrewd. She knew that Agrippina and Nero were threats to her son, Britannicus. According to Suetonius, one time, Messalina sent assassins into Nero's bedroom while Nero was taking a nap with the instructions to kill him. He was probably a toddler at this time. Can you imagine what, what Messalina's bullet journal would look like? Her bullet scroll, yes. Yeah, gild nipples. Tick. <laughs> Confiscate gardens. Tick. Uh, Assassinate small children. Arrow, deferred to the next day. (laughs) However, the assassins were scared off when a snake slithered out from under Nero's bed. The assassins saw the snake as an omen. It actually
1: wasn't a snake. It was a snakeskin. But the people didn't need to know that. If people wanted to believe that snakes protected young Nero, then Agrippina, ever the politically savvy woman, was happy to let them go on believing it. In fact, she had the snake skin made into a gold bracelet that she gave to Nero, and that is just excellent mumming. Just excellent mumming.
0: <laughs> mumming is now a verb.
1: Mumming is a verb in the UK.
0: <laughs> oh, well, so is Caligula-ing.
1: Well, that one, that one is me. This this gold snake skin bracelet became one of Nero's prized possessions. And I just wanted to flag about the snake and the bad, because it reminded me a lot of Hercules. And in the myth of Hercules, his furious mother, Juno, sends down two snakes to kill him. And Hercules kills the snakes while he's a little bit of a baby in his crib. And Agrippina definitely wanted to play up this connection, because it sort of implies that Nero might be a demigod. So Agrippina was a little older than Mes- Selena. But because of this family tree, Agrippina was actually her niece. And Messalina knew that her niece was potentially a problem. While Agrippina remained out of the public eye, Messalina kept her threats, mostly just that, threats. But Agrippina wasn't content to remain in the shadows forever. In 47 AD, Agrippina's husband, Pacinus, died. Just before that, Agrippina had persuaded Pacinus to change his will so that all his fortune went to her. And very shortly after he updated that will, he he dropped dead. Now, if like me, you're a true crime fan and you've watched a lot of Dateline, then you know that odds are very high that his wife killed him. Because once a will or life insurance policy has been changed, that's clear motive.
0: Also, I feel like every time in the ancient sources I see a really convenient death, I immediately think poison.
1: I mean, it wouldn't be the first or last time.
0: Rumors swirled that Agrippina had her husband poisoned. Agrippina had everything to gain from getting rid of her husband. When he died, she had her own money. Money she could use to rejoin the political scene. Money she could use to bribe senators, make alliances, and buy her own soldiers. This was the break Agrippina had been waiting for. In 47 AD,
1: after Agrippina buried her husband...
0: Rest in peace, Passienus.
1: And thanks for that fortune... Thank you! She attended the secular games in Rome. The secular games were meant to happen every hundred years. They were meant to be a a once-in-a-generation type event. But the problem was, they'd already happened when Augustus had been emperor less than a hundred years ago.
0: But Claudius needed this big spectacle to remind people that he was a super cool emperor, which nobody thought at the moment. So he held another secular games before their normal time, which just looks super thirsty to me.
1: So thirsty.
0: Yeah, this is a very expensive thirst trap. I mean, that was most of his brain. <laughs> <laughs> We're being so hard on Claudius. And the secular games were very important. Everyone who was anyone was at these games. And this is where Agrippina and Nero decided to return to the Roman stage. And of course, they did so in a spectacular fashion.
1: At the secular games, there was something called the Troy Pageant, where little noble boys dressed up as soldiers and were paraded around.
0: If there's one thing that the ancient Romans went absolutely nuts for, it was a little boy in a soldier outfit. I mean,
1: yeah, that was kind of their catnip.
0: You could stop a mutiny by showing the soldiers a teensy little toddler in a soldier outfit.
1: That's what happened in Germanicus the Manicus.
0: That's how Caligula got to be called Caligula.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So this pageant was to celebrate the fact that Rome was descended from the city of Troy.
0: Nero and Britannicus were among the boys in that pageant and the crowd went wild for Nero and definitely not for Britannicus. Well, they didn't go
1: as wild for Britannicus.
0: Yeah, but I think that if they were going wild for Nero at all, it would have made Messalina mad. Yeah, exactly. So the crowd went wild for Nero and Agrippina – They couldn't take their eyes off this tragic mom and only surviving daughter of Germanicus, along with little fatherless Nero. He's just 10 years old, and he definitely did not have a neckbeard at all. No 10-year-old neckbeards. No. These two made the perfect tragic heroes. You can totally imagine them in the tabloids, people just fawning over their misfortunes, rooting for them to regain power and be happy again after so much loss. Agrippina was back. She had come to Rome to ensure a future for herself and her son and chew gum, and she was all out of gum. She probably spat it into Messalina's hair. Agrippina was playing for keeps now, and she had a sister to avenge. Messalina was about to get a new rival for the public's affections, and Messalina lost her shit when she realized that the crowd loved Nero and Agrippina more than her and Britannicus. She had no chill, and she started a smear campaign against Agrippina. Over the next two years, Messalina would spend her time trying to get Agrippina exiled and executed, mostly levying charges of magical and superstitious practices but the charges didn't stick. And I just have to ask here, was that the best she could do? I mean, everybody was superstitious. I kind of
1: wonder if this is meant to make Agrippina look like what we'd think of as a modern day witch, but that doesn't also make sense to me.
0: The other thought that I had was, you see Messalina charging other people with things like adultery and homosexual acts and stuff. And what this tells me here is that Agrippina's game must have been real tight because those more incendiary charges wouldn't have sticked. Exactly. She had to find
1: something... really woolly that would be difficult to disprove. So in 48 AD, Claudius was busy conducting a census. His attention was on the empire, on the fine nuts and bolts of running it. And he wasn't paying as close attention to Rome as he should have been.
0: I mean, this is just such a breath of fresh air. An emperor who actually cares about, like, the empire. Yeah, and the people in that empire. Like,
1: he honestly wanted to know who his people were.
0: Yeah, and like, he cares about, you know, grain supplies and road quality and aqueducts and city sanitation and stuff. I mean, who cares about that? I thought most emperors are busy running brothels out of the imperial palace. It's been known to happen.
1: Anyway, in 48 AD, the Empress Messalina finally decides to stage a coup. And it went down like this. Messalina was having a steamy affair with Gaius Silius, whose name I just can't. (laughs) He was an aristocrat and a senator whose star was on the rise. He'd just been elected to serve as consul for the following year. And he was described as intelligent, attractive, and noble. And apparently down to clown.
0: He was he was attractive, noble, (laughs) down to clown.
1: (laughs) You can tell when Jenny edits my script and I'm like, oh, I didn't didn't write that. (laughs) I didn't put down to clown in. You were responsible for all the down to clowns in this in this script. (laughs) Not in this bed. I did not write down to plan there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I did. Who put it in? Messalina put it in.
1: (laughs) So this affair with Messalina was very much out in the open. They were the kind of PDA couple who make you incredibly uncomfortable. They're kind of dry humping at 7 a.m. on your commuter train and you just want to tell them to stop. But you don't because you're a little bit reserved after spending 12 years in the UK. You just sort of give them evil glaring eye.
0: I mean, they kind of remind me of Atalanta and Hippomenes. They're like PDA lions. (laughs) Totally. I mean, you saw what happened to them. Don't have sex on somebody's temple altar. Right. Try to restrain yourself when you're in the presence of a goddess or Jen at 7 a.m. on the commuter train. (laughs) (laughs) While Claudius was out of town, Messalina
1: decided to force Silius to divorce his wife because, of course, he was already married. Apparently, Messalina is only attracted to married men. And to marry her publicly. Messalina gets a lot of slack here for what happens next. And kind of deservedly so. But it's worth thinking about why she chose to marry Silius. Besides being in love or lust with the guy, he was also a popular senator who could adopt Britannicus and help see the boy onto the throne. It's possible Messalina saw Claudius' overthrow as inevitable. Or, you know, maybe she really did love him.
0: But still, this plot kind of makes no sense. Was this really Messalina's grand plan to marry Silius while Claudius was out of town, have a public wedding, and in the confusion somehow convince everyone that, surprise, Silius is now the new emperor? I mean, how does that even work? (laughs) But Suetonius talks about how even Claudius spent time worrying that somehow this marriage meant that he was no longer emperor. And again, that also makes no sense to me and just seems to be ancient sources trying to make Claudius look even more bumbling than he was. Yeah. There's also an alternative theory, which is mentioned by Barbara Levick in her book Claudius. She points out that Tacitus mentions they were in the middle of celebrating the Vinalia, which was a grape festival, and it's possible Messalina's quote-unquote marriage to Silius was actually just part of the ritual and not really a marriage at all, in which case it was completely and tragically blown out of proportion. And maybe Claudius used this as a pretext to get rid of Messalina. Like, he was kind of done with her and this was his chance to get rid of her for good because she wasn't really making him look that great. And that kind of sounds like Claudius would do. Claudius was a lot wilier than he gets credit for. Was he a shirt fox? A fox in a Spartan shirt, yes. (laughs) We've already given our PSA. Remember, kids, if you have a shirt fox, tell someone. Tell someone. So anyway... Anyway, Claudius heard the news, returned to the city with his soldiers, and cleaned house. Messalina, knowing she was in trouble, took their son and went to meet him in the road into the city. According to Tacitus, quote, Messalina had presented herself and was insisting that the emperor should listen to the mother of Octavia and Britannicus when Narcissus roared out at her the story of Cilius and her marriage. At the same moment, to draw Claudius' eyes away from her, he handed him some papers which detailed her debaucheries, with a vehemently indignant appeal Messalina demanded that a wife should not be given up to death without a hearing. So, Narcissus replied that the emperor would hear her and that she would have an opportunity of disproving the charge. So, Messalina was sent to the
1: gardens of Lucillus, the beautiful gardens that she had confiscated from Valerius, under a kind of house arrest. According to Tacitus, this is what happened next. Quote, "'Messalina, meanwhile, in the gardens of Lucillus, "'was struggling for life and writing letters of entreaty "'as she alternated between hope and fury. "'Claudius had returned home to an early banquet. "'Then, in softened mood, when the wine had warmed him, "'he bade someone go and tell the poor creature—' "'This is the word which they say he used.' "'Okay, weird translation.' "'This is in the
0: translation. We're not putting that in.' "'We're not. It's very
1: confusing. "'To come on the morrow and plead her cause. "'Hearing this, seeing, too, that Claudius's wrath was subsiding and his passion returning and fearing in the event of delay, the event of approaching night and conjugal recollections.
0: Narcissus was clearly just terrified that they were going to bang it out.
1: Totally. He was like, oh my God, she's going to come over and you are, they are going to bang it out.
0: Yeah. Well, as soon as she gets there, I mean, Claudius is going to be like, you know, I was really mad, but you're so pretty and oh, I just want to like, you're so pretty and you're so good at sex because apparently you sleep with everyone. Right, and oh, now you're doing that thing I like, and oh, I can't be mad at you when you look at me like that. Can't be mad at you when you're doing that thing I like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I can see why Narcissus was worried. I
1: can. So, we're going back to the quote.
0: We're still in this quote, it's really long.
1: Narcissus rushed out and ordered the centurions and tribunes who were on guard to accomplish the deed of blood. <laughs> I'm sorry, is isn't so inappropriate, this should be heart- heart-wrenching, I just...
0: We're reading a heart-wrenching story of the last final moments of this poor woman, and you cannot stop laughing at her plight, Jen. (laughs) This is such a Claudius thing to do. Inappropriate laughter.
1: Claudius would approve. Yeah. Such as he said was the Emperor's bidding, hurrying on before, with all speed to the gardens, he found Messalina stretched upon the ground, while by her side sat Lepida, her mother, who, though estranged from her daughter in prosperity, was now melted to pity by her inevitable doom, and urged her not to wait for the executioner. I mean, it doesn't sound like she's melted into pity. Well, I mean, can you blame her? Messalina got her
0: husband killed because that husband didn't want to bang it out. This is Lepida, whose real name is Domitia Lepida, the younger sister to Domitia Lepida the elder. And if you remember earlier in this episode, Messalina had tried to seduce her stepfather, Lepida's husband. He'd turned her down and she'd had him executed. So this is why her mom is now estranged from her. Anyway, so the mother is now urging her daughter not to wait for the executioner. Don't wait.
1: Life, she said, was over. All that could be looked for was honor and death. Messalina still prolonged her tears and idle complaints, Till the gates were forced open by the rush of newcomers. And there stood at her side the tribune, sternly silent, and the freedmen, overwhelming her with the copious insults of the servile tongue. Oh, I roll. Yeah. Then, for the first time, she understood her fate and put her hand to a dagger. In her terror, she was applying it ineffectually to her throat and breast, when a blow from the tribune drove it through her. Her body was given up to her mother. Claudius was still at the banquet when they told him that Messalina was dead without mentioning whether it was by her own or another's hand, nor did he ask the question, but called for the cup and finished his repast as usual.
0: And I wanted to include this passage about Messalina's death because it's just so haunting, even though Jen and I were complete assholes and laughed our way through it.
1: We were not complete assholes. We were moved by the spirit of Claudius' inappropriate laughter.
0: Right, so it was actually appropriate. Messalina here alternates between being convinced she can get Claudius back on her side and being furious that he won't listen to her. Her only company is her mother, whose husband Messalina allegedly tried to steal and then had executed. Her own mother tells her to kill herself because her life is is over. The only noble thing left to do is to end it. And to me, beyond the whole after thing, this is really just heartbreaking. And it's also beyond depressing that Claudius just goes about eating his meal as if nothing has happened. But going beyond that, the betrayal and death of Messalina changed something in Claudius. He proclaimed that he wouldn't remarry, that he'd rather remain celibate because he'd been so unlucky in marriage. And he
1: had been unlucky in three marriages.
0: Yeah, because Messalina was his third. And I don't know what happened with the other two, but my assumption is they didn't work out so well. They didn't not work out very well but to
1: paraphrase jane austen an emperor is always in need of a wife and in the wings hidden in the shadows was agrippina she had been playing a very long game she'd outlasted her rivals she'd amassed a fortune she'd gotten herself in the good graces of the powerful senators and people of rome her time was finally here the world was about to be hers
0: Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with the epic conclusion to our ancient world Stark saga.
1: And before you go, we want to thank our incredible new Patreon subscribers, Adam Armstrong,
0: Alexa Bartlett,
1: Sarah Clevering,
0: the wonderful folks at Aneshi Press,
1: and Angela Alverson. Your generosity keeps this podcast going.
0: Yeah, we cannot thank you enough, you guys. We're amazed and astonished and honestly humbled that people want to join our Patreon. It's really exciting and it really makes us feel great. Thank you so much. And if you're not following us on Patreon, make sure you do. As we'll be uploading some polls for patrons and announcing our first movie night, we have been just completely flat out keeping up with the podcast over the holidays. We've both been just kind of digging ourselves out from work. So we haven't really been able to do a lot with our Patreon, but we're getting to it in the new year. Don't worry. Exactly.
1: And, you know, if you like what we do and you want to keep the conversation going, follow Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook, Instagram, and Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter.
0: And if you're not one for social media, but you like what we do and want to support us, then please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts or tell your friends about the podcast. Word of mouth happens both on and offline, and we appreciate it wherever it happens. Thank you, guys, and we'll see you in two
1: weeks.